All right, so we're going to be in Matthew 27. So if you take your Bibles and go with me to Galatians chapter 5. I'm not kidding. <laughs> Galatians 5. I know it's not your, those of you who have notes are like, what? It's not there. And I, I, there's a reason. So Galatians 5. No, Galatians 5 verse 24. And what I want to do is I want to start the sermon this morning from Galatians 5.24, and I want to end the sermon today in Galatians 5.24. I want, I want to hit, hit that verse twice, and, and you'll understand after we get through this sermon why we're doing this. So listen to what Paul says to the Galatians. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh... With its passions and desires. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Let's pray. Father, as we consider today the road to the crucifixion and the crucifixion. I ask, Father, that for those of us that have been in the faith for years, decades, that you today, Lord, would break our hearts anew as we consider what our Lord had to endure for our sakes. We glaze over verses like this. And we don't stop to reflect upon what this really implies. Lord, I also pray for those that are in this room today that do not know You as Savior. They have not placed their faith and their hope and their trust and their reliance and their dependence in Christ. No more, Lord. No more. Today is the day of salvation. So I pray, Lord, that as you use me, as, as I speak today, that you would be very proactive in our hearts. Break us anew. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you want to take your Bibles and go to Matthew 27, you can keep your finger in Galatians because we will be back there. The average child will see around 8,000 murders on television before finishing elementary school. 8,000 murders before they finish fifth grade. By 18, the same child will have seen around 200,000 acts of violence, including 40,000 murders. Strangely, as much as we lower our guard as parents 
when it comes to the content of what our children watch on TV, it bothers us to think that anyone would give a physical description of the crucifixion of Jesus. What's even more strange is that we as a church deeply desire, I hope anyway, for the children of our church to understand the historical reliability of the Scripture. The events of the Bible really happened as they are recorded. In fact, we would want them to understand that the greatest act recorded in all of history, biblical history or otherwise, is the crucifixion and death of Jesus the Messiah. And yet we don't want our children to know what a crucifixion is really like out of fear that it might scar them. Let me respond to that line of thinking in two ways. There's nothing that can scar our children more than the tens of thousands of murders and acts of violence they experience monthly, weekly, daily through television. It's horrifying to think about how numb we've actually become to the whole notion of murder. Secondly, if anything's going to impact our children, it should be the gruesome death of Jesus. A real historical event rather than mind-numbing fiction. In fact, um, you don't have to turn there. Back in Galatians, Paul said in chapter 3, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. We need to understand what actually happened at the cross. So, due to a commitment that we have in our church to expositional preaching, we must come and deal with the actual historical event of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Now, Rod is carefully and faithfully moved us to this point. We've experienced Judas's betrayal, uh, the trial before Caiaphas. We've experienced Peter's denial. And last week, Jesus' whole substitution for Barabbas at the action of Pilate, the poor hand-washed puppet of the Jews. We closed last week with Jesus being scourged or flogged, which is... Uh, which are fancy words for having massive chunks of flesh ripped off your back through a really decent whipping. And then we come to Matthew 27, verse 27 through 44. Listen to what Matthew records. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion, that's about 600 people, before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took a, the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe. And put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. 
And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the, of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in that way. And just for fun, 45, 46, for the kids' sake. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So we see this, 27 through 31, the work of the Roman soldiers. They now take liberty here to trump up the accusation of Jesus being the king of the Jews. And they did this because there was great a great deal of animosity between Romans and Jews. The Romans relished the moment that this pathetic, defenseless man was the best the Jews had to offer as their king. The Jews had to tolerate the ridicule of Jesus because of how much they themselves hated Jesus. They despised the thought that this was their king and the Romans loved it and took full advantage of it. So we imagine what it was like for the crown of thorns we jammed down on his head. We have songs about it, right? And yet we tend to overlook what the Roman soldiers did in addition to that. Remember that they were, they were mocking him as Jewish royalty. And all royals need a crown and a robe and a scepter. So they drape a purple robe over his back. And that it's unlikely that it was a purple robe of some Jewish leader or some Roman leader. Chances are the robe that was tossed on his back was that uh, a cape of a Roman soldier. Not very glamorous. Uh, the back, his back was just freshly beaten. So deeply that it's possible that he had had exposure to kidneys and lungs. That's how deep the beating was. They hand him a reed in place of a scepter. And then with the reed, that same reed, they take it out of his hand and they smack him in the face. Of course, the crown punctures his scalp. And then when they're done with all of this mockery, they rip the robe off of him. How many of you have ever had a cut on your arm or leg and it sticks to your clothes? Can you imagine the pain of having your back in rivulets of meat, a robe draped over that, and then after however many minutes, 
however many hours, that robe is then ripped off of your back. All the adornments of royalty that were His at the Father's side in eternal glory are used as instruments of torture on His road to the cross. As if this weren't bad enough, verse 32, we're introduced to Simon of Cyrene. He's commissioned to help Jesus carry the cross beam. By the way, this is, we, we, there's glamorous thoughts of Simon being this person that just, you know, sees Jesus in need and helps him out. And guys, anybody that helps somebody get to the cross really isn't doing them a favor. He was commissioned for this. He was forced to do this. And certainly such a beam that he was, that Christ was carrying, though heavy, would have been manageable for a physically fit and healthy person. However, if at this point your back is in shreds and you've lost a considerable amount of blood and you're supposed to carry the cross probably the length of about five football fields, you're probably going to need some help. Much like Barabbas' story, Simon's has several points of application for us as believers. And here in this little verse, we catch a glimpse of the humanity of Jesus. It's true. God doesn't need our help. The reason the account played out this way theologically has more to do with Christ sympathizing with our weaknesses by being weak himself. Full and complete substitution required suffering and great humility. We could never say that Jesus is weak without us, but rather he was made weak for us. In, in, in a strange twist here, you understand that Jesus didn't need Simon, but somehow in all this, Simon needed Jesus. We ourselves are called by Christ to take up the cross and follow him every single day. There's no way around this, family. When that command was given by Christ, the the first century follower of Jesus knew exactly what that meant. A man who took up his cross was on a one-way road. There was no turning back, no stopping for a rest, no reasoning with the guards about postponement, no sitting back going, guys, my back's killing me. Can we just... Wait a couple of days, let this heal, and then you can crucify me? <laughs> That's not the way this works. When you started on the road to Golgotha, you were going to die. The beautiful picture of what we're seeing in this text is that Christ, the one that calls us to take up our cross, He went before us. It was not a call to suffer beyond what Christ himself suffered, but rather to suffer like Christ suffered. So his physical suffering sets the bar for what should be happening in our world spiritually every single day. And we come to verses 33 through 44. When he finally makes it to Golgotha, he tastes... And then rejects a concoction that was meant, some think, to just assuage the pain. They would often give crucified men just a touch of wine to help dull the senses. Because this was painful. He was, but he rejects it. Which means that he, 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 he intended to feel the full effect 
of what was happening to him, or it's possible that even the concoction itself was filled with mockery. It's likely that one of the ingredients in this drink was very bitter. Gall was very bitter. It's possible that those that offered it to him didn't intend for him to drink it at all, but just to feel the continued bitterness that they had in their hearts towards Christ. They knew when that sponge went up there, he wasn't going to drink it because it was nasty. Now, with little flair and even less detail, Matthew records the crucifixion of Jesus. And again, no first century Palestinian needed an explanation of this. The process of crucifixion was so horrid that parents would take precautions to shelter their children from ever seeing a person crucified. And going back to what I said earlier, this is not something that I would want us to tell our children apart from the fact that this is Christ's crucifixion. Crucifixions happened all the time. The amount of pain a crucified man experienced was so intense that the Romans coined a new word in Latin where we now get the word excruciating, which means out of the cross. The Jews hated the notion of crucifixion, even considering it too humiliating a way to die. And this was escalated by a passage in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 21, 23, which stated in a nutshell that the weight of the curse of God was for anyone hung from a tree. So for the Jews to insist to the point of rioting that Jesus be crucified shows just how deep-seated their hatred actually was. Christ's crucifixion went something like this. When Jesus arrived at the place of crucifixion, they laid him down and his cross beam down on the ground over another beam that would shortly be hoisted into the air. They would stretch his arms as far apart as they could, as, as far as far as, as, as far apart as they could. And in some cases, dislocating shoulders in order to do so. Then spikes were driven through the wrists course demolishing bone but also demolishing nerves and that would have sent blasts of pain through the arms much like banging your funny bone. i mean it's not funny is it multiply the banging of your funny bone by about a hundred and that's what it felt like to have uh, spikes driven through your wrists then they would take one spike and drive it through the the feet or the ankles however they wouldn't stretch him tight rather they would leave uh, the leg slightly bent so that the crucified man could take time to rest on the sedecula. We don't talk about that. We don't think about that as part of the crucifixion, but it was a little seat that he would sit on. This little seat could actually be, arguably, the worst part of, of a Roman crucifixion. The reason is because a crucified man could only breathe by pushing up on the nail on his feet. Which, of course, would cause severe pain. The sedecula gave the body a moment of rest between breaths, which prolonged the torture of the cross. D.A. Carson puts it like this. He says, stripped and naked. By the way, these pictures of Jesus on a crucifix with a loincloth... Probably not. 
stripped and naked and beaten to pulpy weakness, the victim could hang in the hot sun for hours, even days. To breathe, it was necessary to push up with the legs and pull with the arms to keep the chest cavity open and and functioning. Terrible muscle spasm racked the entire body. But since collapse meant asphyxiation, the strain went on and on. This is why the sedecula prolonged life and agony. It partially supported the body's weight and therefore encouraged the victim to fight on. And so it was for our Messiah. So in the meantime, while he's hanging there, the guards go about doing what guards do during crucifixions. They drew lots for who would get his clothing. Attached above his head is the sign. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Intended to be sheer mockery to the Jews, but instead declares a bold and powerful truth. A truth, obviously, that they were completely unaware of. The only way for me or for us to be a true Israelite, a true child of God, a citizen of the heavenly kingdom requires my king to die in order to purchase my pardon. His death was declaring and establishing his kingdom, a kingdom composed of those purchased by his shed blood. But knowing that a guy was tacked to a tree and wasn't going anywhere, the soldiers, after gambling away his clothes, they sit down and watch. Isn't that a little bit alarming? They just sit there. Crucifixions were so commonplace to the Roman soldier that this one was no different than the last one. At least, so they thought. Then, to make matters worse, multitude of voices... Voices who had already cried out for his crucifixion. Voices that had already declared that the guilt of his death be on our heads and on our children's continue by mocking and jeering him. You would think that it was enough to see to it that he made it to the cross. But then to stand there making a complete mocker of him is just is pitiful. Then, to make matters even worse... The two guys who are guilty and crucified next to him start mocking him too. We know that's not the end of the story. We'll come back to this. Have you ever asked yourself, where is God? Life gets difficult. Not knowing exactly what direction God is going. Anybody been there besides Besides me? Where is God? This would be one of those times. Betrayed, broken, battered, beaten, bloodied, bullied. Here was Jesus hanging like a slab of butchered meat, baking in the hot sun while listening in to the mockery and the jeers of the crowds who just wouldn't let up. Where is God? How did things get this way? He came to his own and his own did not receive him. They not only disregarded the amazing acts of kindness and his words of profound wisdom, but accused him of being in union with the devil and guilty of blasphemy. How could this be? Well, to answer this question, we need to back up from the crucifixion 900 years. Go to Psalm 22. 
Listen to the words of David. We're just going to read the whole thing. We've got time, right? Yeah, we're good. Psalm 22. Kids, this may be the answer to your first question. This is a psalm of who? David. Very good. Guys are awake. Okay, Psalm 22. Verse 1. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame, but I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusted in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks To my jaws you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help... Come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify Him and stand in awe of Him. All you offspring of Israel, for He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And He has not hidden His face from Him, but has heard when He cried to Him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear Him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and He rules over nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before Him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not... Keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Where was God? 
let me boldly declare to you today that the sovereign of the universe was in every detail of that day 2,000 years ago. So that today, May 19th, 2019, we would respond to Jesus, not in pity, but with something greater. What's greater than pity? Faith. Sincerity won't get you to heaven. Neither will feeling sorry for Jesus. Those things will come and go. They'll, they'll pass. The only thing that works, the only proper response in, is trusting that Jesus went to the cross with your sin and absorbed the wrath of God on your behalf. This horrid situation in which God's perfect lamb was crucified is not an afterthought to God. Rather, it is the very thing God would use to draw us to himself. In fact, in our family devotion time, we're going through First Peter, and Peter talks about how Jesus is the Lamb chosen before the foundation of the world. This is not an afterthought. Now, how do we respond in application to these things? Let me give you three thoughts. First, isn't it alarming that the guards and the crowds were distracted by materialism, unengaged? even unmoved, so as to just sit down while their only means of salvation rides in torturous death before them? Or to be so persuaded by popular opinion as to join the voices of ridicule as we saw earlier in this text? Listen to Romans 10. Take a minute to turn to Romans 10, 14 through 17. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 10, verse 14. Are you there, Debbie? (laughs) All right. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who is to believe what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Well, what does that have to do with the crucifixion? The means... God uses to draw people to himself is through the proclamation of the crucified Christ. But when we go to church, are we any different than the Roman soldiers? How often do we do material things? Distract us from the message of the gospel? How often do we walk into this room and are completely unengaged, even mindlessly bored at the prospect of having to sit through another worship service? Now, you don't all have to raise your hands. How frequently are we moved by popular opinion? And we miss the most important thing. I want to think that any one of us would be different if we'd been there that day. But the reality is, 
we wouldn't be any different. And I know this because we're all guilty of the exact same crimes as the people who were there that day. In fact, the behavior of the soldiers and the crowds should lead us to repentance. Secondly, it's imperative. It's imperative. Sorry. It's crucial. It's important. <laughs> I realize now imperative is kind of a big word. Kids, how many of you know what imperative means? Yeah, that's what I thought. It, it just means that we have to talk about this, okay? So it, it's imperative that we deal with the issue of God's sovereignty in all of this. God was fully aware of the mockery. Did you notice in Psalm 22, even word for word, what was going to be said? Uh, he was aware of the Gentile involvement. Did you notice in Psalm 22? The reference to bulls and dogs. Those are Jewish euphemisms for Gentiles. He was aware of the means of death through crucifixion. Psalm 22, 16, penned by David around 900 years before Christ, was about 200 years or so before crucifixion was even invented. He was aware even of the trivial detail of Christ's clothes being gambled away 900 years before it happened. We need to be aware that the worst circumstances never negate, never take away from the sovereign hand of God. It's better to remember that God is in control of every detail, even the most painful and trying ones, than to think that God has somehow ceased to be in control. Wouldn't you rather serve a God who never lets go of the wheel than a God who's like, ha, not right now. I don't know what's going on. How about a God like that? How about a God who has a big question mark over his head as often as we do? Scary, isn't it? So I'd rather, I'd rather know and believe that God is actually in control even when it hurts. Third, lastly, what's amazing is that one of the criminals crucified with Jesus, though at one point lifts his voice in mockery along with the crowds, somehow comes to the realization that he needs saved. Whatever could change, whatever could change this guy's heart. Ever considered this? Two guys exactly in the same situation. Listen to the words of John Newton. This is the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. He penned a whole lot of poetry, and this is one of them. When the Lord was crucified, two transgressors with him died. One with vile, blaspheming tongue scoffed as Jesus as he hung. Thus he spent his wicked breath in the very jaws of death, perished as too many do with the Savior in his view. But the other, touched with grace, saw the danger of his case. Faith received to own the Lord, whom the scribes and priests abhorred. Lord, he prayed, remember me when in glory thou shalt be. Soon with me, the Lord replies, thou shalt rest in paradise. 
This was wondrous grace indeed. Grace vouchsafed in time of need. Sinners trust in Jesus' name. You shall find Him still the same. But be aware of unbelief. Think upon that hardened thief. If the gospel you disdain, Christ to you will die in vain. Sovereign grace has power alone to subdue a heart of stone. And the moment grace is felt, then the hardest of hearts will melt. Go back with me to Galatians 5 as we close. Consider now, as we read this, the intense suffering of our Lord. Consider as we read this, what we're actually being called to in this verse. Those who belong to Christ Jesus... have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Let's pray. Father, I just beg you again. Please, Lord, rescue hearts today I, I've, for a long long time I've just been so broken over our need in this church for revival and I not necessarily you know lost people coming to Christ but for saved people to to catch this vision all over again that this this Jesus went all the way to the cross for us Please don't let us look upon these things lightly. Please don't let us to take them for granted. You went through all of this because I'm a vile, disgusting, perverted man. And I live amidst a group of vile, disgusting, perverted people. We can't come in here, Lord, and and try to dress the part and look the right way in front of everybody else. The reality is we stand before you with, with nothing. No good works. And, and our arms are loaded with just, just disgusting, weighted sin. And you died as our substitute. That, that, that you, Father, looked at your Son and you cursed Him on my behalf. I can't just get over that. It's a shame, Lord, that I would even go a day and not ponder the reality of this great and amazing good news. So God, break us, please, that we might be made whole again in Christ. And we pray this in His holy, precious, and powerful name. Amen.